Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, FEVS scores, came out just before Christmas, and results in general seem to be pointed in the right direction. For some early analysis, we turn to the partner and director of government and public affairs at Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, Jason Briefel. Jason, good to have you in studio. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Of course, you have followed this stuff very carefully for years now. And what's the big picture? What do the Feb scores look like for 2023? So the big picture is a good one. The scores are trending upward a little bit, but in a noticeable way after a two-year kind of dip coming out of the heavy, heavy 2020 year of the pandemic. So in the framing of OPM, who issued this report, and in my read of it, you know, in the big picture, that's a good sign. We're going up. So the sense of engagement and the sense that on employees' part that leaders actually lead and so on, those scores are up a tick. Yes. And I think that it's important to parse those out, right? You know, engagement is up a point overall to 72. And in the leader's lead, there's some indices that break that down. Is that the political leaders or the leaders on high? Is that your direct supervisor? And one of the great things about this report is it shows those over time. And and I was happy to see, and I think it's notable that the supervisor score, you know, has been about 80% consistently across time. And as we know, your frontline supervisor, that's where the rubber meets the road with the workforce. Right. That'll make you leave or stay much more readily than almost anything else going on. Absolutely. But I juxtapose that to the leader's lead category where, you know, those can be perceived and they are historically, this is a question in the survey where it's unclear. Are they talking about the secretary in the front office or the SESers nearby the front office, but still maybe the career folks? Those scores are about 20 points lower. You know, they went up two points to 61, but there's a big difference difference there. And I think that that's important area for agencies to keep investing in, paying attention to. The political leadership and how it is perceived. Unclear if it's political or career, but it's those higher level leaders. What's the tone that they're setting in the organization? You know, what leadership values are they articulating and guiding the workforce, hopefully, with? It's really hard to attribute a given factor to the scores. I mean, you can say, well, they're getting a 5.2% pay raise, but that wasn't extant at the time the survey was taken. Right. And it's important to realize when the survey was taken in the spring of this year, this is when agencies were getting increased that they were going to be pushed to come back into the office a little bit more on the the eve of an OMB memo focused on organizational health and performance. But it was a government-wide census, so they sent it to everybody, and 39% of the workforce responded. So decent, not great, but a decent population. And that was something that I found interesting, Tom, looking at the data here. The people who responded to the survey tend to be higher graded and older than your average federal workforce. So as I look at the data, I think it's important to realize that we're undersampled, we're underrepresenting the Gen Y and the Gen Z population, and that's where our gap is in the workforce. And they have different attitudes toward work, different attitudes toward supervision, you might even say. Yeah. Which leads to the question about whether people perceive that their agency leadership will do anything with the scores they get, agency by agency. So across the board, that one is not really good. That's one of the very lowest scores in the survey in the government-wide data. This is question 47. Only 48% of respondents think that the survey will be used to make their agency a better place to work. So again, you have this disconnect. If you're going to survey your workforce about this stuff, you have got to put it into action. 
and show them fast that you're doing something about this. And, you know, I've been talking and doing stuff around this for 11 years now, and that theme has been the constant theme. And hopefully agencies are getting better at that, and they really have no excuse if they're not because OPM is getting much better at putting this data in their hands faster. Sure. It's like grandma asking if you're hungry, and you say yes, but she doesn't have anything to feed you. So it was just a matter of curiosity. That doesn't sit too well with people. Right. And again, I think the data is there. I think that as we go forward into the future, it's wonderful to have the dashboard that OPM presents where you can dig in and into the data and then look what's going on there, what's going on at my agency, what's going on at similar agencies. And hopefully we get to a place in the future in the federal government where this isn't a once a year Christmas present from OPM. You know, It's more of a normal course of business. We're using this data to manage our workforce all the time. We're speaking with Jason Briefel. He's a partner and director of government and public affairs at the law firm Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. And people love to see which agencies are doing great, which ones are doing terrible. And there was a bad slippage in one very large agency, wasn't there? There was. You know, the Social Security Administration continues its fallout. You know, this is a combination of, I think, a lot of factors. Their workload, the nature of their work, how far they are able to get in modernization initiatives there. And then they've had an acting leader for, you know, most of the Obama administration, most of this administration, obviously. President and they didn't Biden like the leader they had right. during the Trump administration, right. rightly President or Biden wrongly. did not like the commissioner that was in from the Trump administration and somewhat controversially fired that official. But I guess good news coming. The Senate finally confirmed Martin O'Malley to lead that agency. And I know he knows that he has a full plate to tackle, but uh, has experience as an, as an operator and administrator that hopefully can help focus on the critical you know, needs and the sure. workforce needs of that agency. Former Maryland governor. And, you know, at the tiny agencies, I think the Chemical Safety Board shot up 23 percent. There's only a few people at that agency. But we see this year after year, sometimes some tiny, obscure agency, the Marine Mammal Commission, did really well a couple of years ago, simply because of sometimes new leadership. So I don't know what happened there, but I definitely saw that Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board, something along those lines. I'm sorry to folks who work there if I butchered your agency title. And I think you're right, Tom. Stuff can happen fast. You can drop out the bottom. You can rise to the top. And I think that that is a positive lesson for agencies listening out there. You know, the scores are not your destiny. The scores are giving you information about what's happening so you can go to where you want to go. And hopefully they're used as a tool for improvement. And again, as I read into these, I think this should always be the start of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. Now, the survey itself was a little bit different. They're always tweaking it, and there's some new questions, and it's hard to be comparable sometimes from one year to the other. What did you find this year? So... I think that it's good that you have these core set of questions, but that OPM is also looking all the time, what are trends, what are key areas that we need to hone in on? And they may do that for various reasons. So obviously, there's a lot of focus around telework, remote work, things like that. So OPM tightened up the phrasing, apparently, that they used in some of their questions so we could parse, are we talking about telework here? Are we talking about a remote worker? And so that helps get us more granular data about what's happening with those people. And something that I think is really interesting and often gets lost in the debate about federal telework, but it's clear as day in the survey, in 2022, 20% of people in this year, 21% of folks said that they don't telework at all. 
These are law enforcement people, people at the border, people in uh, security, other types of security roles, uh, maybe on a military base. So it's really important to remember that, you know, there's different populations of employees who have different experiences. You know, I look at that against HHS had a great participation rate. Well, other than the folks in a lab, I'm going to guess that most HHS employees are at their desk all the time or a desk somewhere. And I think that that's very different than, say, a Border Patrol or uh, a Bureau of Prisons officer who might not even have a computer. They might just have an agency email account that they have to get to periodically. But that's not really part of the core of their job. Right. A lot of variables depending on the job. And I would say, too, if scores are up in general and the level of telework that was engendered by the pandemic has not changed that much, even though there's all this push, as you say, to get people back. But I think most agencies have settled at the most three days a week back in the office and scores are going up. That means that some level of widespread and regularized telework might be good for the workforce. I'm making a correlation here, but, you know, this is settled in now. Yeah, I think it's settled in. I think, you know, if you look nationally at what's going on in this space, about a 50% is the benchmark that in professional organizations we're heading to. And you think about it, real estate's expensive. If you're not using it all, you can shed it and then you can invest in training and development of your workforce, which is another one of those areas that the survey added some new questions around in 2022. And we're starting to see data in. And it was interesting that that was another one of those where it ranked on the lower side of agencies getting the training investment that they need to successfully do their job. Right. So signal to agencies, we know you always cut back on training and development, but it's never a good idea. No, I don't think so. And and I think in an area where we're constantly confronting new technologies to enable a learning mindset, workforce resiliency, again, you know, some some... I'm not sure if these are new questions or if they just tagged them to the OMB memo, but around organizational health and performance, I found it really interesting that some uh, measures around resilience, innovation, and customer responsiveness were highlighted. But you see a dichotomy here. And, you know, I often see these dichotomies in this data. You look at some of the resilience measures uh, for change management. Are employees approaching change and is management helping them approach change? Receive pretty low scores, 57% and 54%. Whereas if you ask employees, you know, are they or their managers engendering an innovation mindset? The scores were better, you know, between 66 and 58%. So you're always like, what exactly is going on there? And I think if you look at it in the grand scheme of the survey, it's not really helpful. This is where digging into your particular agency or office is really helpful. And then and that comes back to the difference between those supervisors and those leaders lead people, political leaders or your executives. Are we helping people put the tools on the deck to really do what they need to do? All right. So to agency managers and leaders then look at this as an assignment and not as a report card alone. Absolutely, Tom. Jason Briefel is a partner and director of government and public affairs at Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. 
Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. 
So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.